Good morning. Thank you. Happy Father's Day to all of you as well. Uh, just some initial things before I get started in our passage today. Uh, there's been something eating by my throat the last couple of weeks, so if I'm clearing my throat a lot, would you please forgive me and just ignore that and try to listen to what I've had to say. A second thing is, as a teacher, your homework, I'm going to give that to you right away, your homework are the community group questions on the back of the bulletin. Well, you think it's important to do your homework this week. There are some important things in the passage that I'm just not able to get to because there's so much here. So there's a couple of real important questions there I think that you should consider and discuss with others that I'm not going to be able to discuss in my sermon today. Uh, the last uh, sort of important thing at the beginning here, those of you who have heard me preach before know that sometimes the passage causes me to be overcome with emotion, okay? I'm a crier. <laughs> uh, because of circumstances in our lives, tears have been very close to the surface. Recently, so I would ask your forgiveness. If today, while preaching, I'm overcome with emotion more than normal, would you please forgive me? And would you please concentrate on the things that I am about to say. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at the latter part of John chapter 10. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship. We thank you that you are worthy of all the worship that we can bring as our Father. And thank you that in our passage today we see the glory of your Son, one with you, his Father and the good shepherd of all of us who are his sheep. May what I say this morning bring glory to Jesus Christ. So it's in his name that I pray, amen. I think most of you could answer the following question. Most of you have been around long enough to know the answer. What are the three most important things in real estate? Location, location, location. I always thought that kind of sound like one thing, but that's just me being a numbers guy. Okay. Whenever you consider a passage of Scripture, one of the things you must consider is context, context, context. When studying, these pass when studying this passage to share with you this morning, I came to the surprising realization that the first two verses, which lay the context for verses 22 to 42, are very important context. They provide the context both in time and geography for the conversation that takes place in the remaining 19 verses. So we cannot just read over them and quickly get to the good stuff. Were we to do that, we would miss some very important truths that help us fully understand the narrative, the context is provided in verses 22 and 23. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. How much could be there in that information? The answer, I think, is 
quite a lot. Our passage begins with a timestamp and geography lesson. The last timestamp we've had in John has been in chapter 7 when Jesus traveled privately to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. That feast occurs in the fall after the Day of Atonement. In chapter 7, Jesus did not accompany his family to Jerusalem so as not to draw attention to himself, for his time had not yet come. Now, it's now the beginning of winter. It's several months later, and Jesus is celebrating the Feast of Dedication. A little background. This is not a feast that was given to Israel by God in the Old Testament. This was a feast of Israel's own making. In the year 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek ruler of Syria, invaded Judea and Samaria. He conquered Jerusalem, set up an altar to Zeus in the temple. Pigs were slaughtered on this altar, an abomination to the Jews. And many Israelites were either killed or enslaved. In 165 BC, two years later, Judas Maccabeus led a successful revolt against the Jewish oppressors. The temple was recaptured, and the Feast of Dedication, or Feast of Lights, celebrated the rededication of the temple at that time. Tradition holds that when the priests went to burn the oil in the candlesticks, they only had enough oil for one day, yet miraculously, the oil burned for eight days. Thus, the eight-day Feast of Dedication, known to us as Hanukkah, with its menorah of eight candles instead of seven. Even today, that feast is celebrated in winter, in late November, early December. Now, the context here, again, is important, not just for timing, when it happened, but for where it happened. Jesus is walking in Solomon's portico. In Matthew chapter 1, did you ever think about the fact that it's somewhat strange that the New Testament would begin with a genealogy of all things? But in that genealogy, Jesus' lineage clearly shows he is of the line of David. He is the true son of David prophesied in the Old Testament. It tells us that Jesus' conception and birth were like no other. He was the son of God come to earth. He was the word who was tabernacling among them. He came with a mission for his name means savior. He came to save his people from their sins. He came for his own, for the sheep his father had given him as the good shepherd. Last week, Pastor John read from Ezekiel 34, the good shepherd passage of the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 34, we also read these words. I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. 
He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. In our passage, these introductory words must not be read quickly without thought. They tell us that here is Jesus, David's true son, walking in the outskirts of the temple, the portion of the temple named for Solomon. He's there during the Feast of Dedication, also called the Feast of Lights, when Israel is celebrating, in essence, the bicentennial of their deliverance from Greek oppression and the purifying and the rededication of the temple. It is more than ironic. It is scriptural fulfillment that the light of the world walked in David's son's portico during the Feast of Lights. The true temple, God himself, is walking amongst his people during the Feast of Dedication for the earthly temple. The world's savior, the good shepherd, came to set his people free from their sins. And what the people at that time were hoping for and looking for and longing for was the second coming of Judas Maccabeus. This context contributes heavily to the understanding of the question in verse number 24. Given the Feast of Dedication, the location of of him walking in the temple, is it any wonder that the conversation in our passage begins with their asking him to clearly state that he is their Messiah? And what they meant by this was, please clearly state to us that your mission is to deliver us from Rome in the same way that Judas Maccabeus delivered us from the Greeks. Jesus' answer and the response of his hearers clearly shows us that in our narrative, there are three types of people. And I would like to structure the rest of our thoughts by painting with a very broad brush around the characteristics of these three types of people. The first group of people I'd like to consider are the non-sheep. In verse 24, we see their question. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. This group of people, the non-sheep, demands a plain statement of Jesus' identity as Messiah. Now, the last time I preached to you, our passage was the story of the woman at the well. You may recall the watershed moment ending that passage where the woman told Jesus that she was resting her hopes on the Messiah that was to come. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am your Messiah. The Jews wanted this same sort of clear statement. 
But because of the context, because of what we mentioned already, Jesus refuses to give them this clarity. Knowing, that they're mis knowing their misconceptions about what Messiah would mean and their desire for a political deliverer from Roman oppressors, Jesus never makes this clear statement to the Jews. In reality, I believe that their question shows their hard attitude. I believe their question was most likely asked uh, to try and trick Jesus and trap Jesus in his words. During Jesus' ministry, those demanding clear statements, those uh, who uh, those who demanded clear statements, had he made them, they would have never believed them. Those demanding signs would have never believed if you showed them. You see, non-sheep are unbelievers who show their lack of faith in many, many differing ways. And Jesus here in John 10, as much as calls them deaf to the things that he's told them, just like in John 9, he had shown them that they were blind. Another characteristic of the people that were not Jesus' sheep was their hatred of Jesus and their hatred of Jesus' followers. When Jesus does give them a clear statement of his identity by telling him that he and the Father are one, they pick up stones to stone him. They try to have him arrested. Last chapter, when the man born blind clearly witnessed to them that Jesus was the Son of God, they, they reviled him. They told him, you were born in utter sin and you're going to teach us? Then they threw him out of the synagogue. When pressed by Jesus' claims today, unbelievers still show their hatred for him and their hatred for those who would testify of his deity. The unbelieving Jews in this passage were really facing and were in a great example of C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma. Do you know that one? C.S. Lewis famously said at one point that there are only three possibilities for Jesus' true identity. He could be a lunatic because of the things he said. He could be the devil of hell, or he could be the son of God he claimed to be. Interestingly enough, in John 8, 48, the Jews said to Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They believed he was from hell, and they believed he was working on Satan's behalf. And that he was hated like they, that they hated the Samaritans. You can reference my last sermon for that discussion. Just a few verses before our passage, in verses 21 and 22. Uh, my bad. In verses 19 through 21, they said, There was again a division among the Jews because of his words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of one who is blind? 
There's Lewis's trilemma in real life. They thought him a lunatic and a demon. Now let's take some time to look at the second group of people in this set of verses, and that is Jesus' sheep. Verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The sheep in this passage are those who had been given to Jesus by his Father, part of the Good Shepherd's flock by God's choice. They hear Jesus. They follow Jesus. That is, they become disciples. They have eternal life. They will never perish. Sounds a lot like John 3.16. And one of the things I want to really focus our attention on from this passage, they are perfectly secure because no one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand since no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now the sheep here didn't, still didn't fully understand Jesus' mission as the disciples didn't either. But they seem convinced of one important thing. Jesus came for me. I need this Jesus to be my shepherd. There are many blessings that come with being a member of Jesus' flock. We see here that our good shepherd knows us. He calls us by name. He gives us eternal life. We could talk about his tender care for us, his provision of everything we need for our bodies and souls. We could think back of the picture of Jesus in Psalm 23, the one who leads us in green pastures, the one who leads us besides still waters, the one who takes care of all of our wants, the one whose presence with us through the valley of the shadow of death, gives us the comfort we need and the one whose goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. What blessings you and I enjoy as sheep in the flock of the good shepherd. In this passage, though, the emphasis is on our security in him. Yes, he knows us. Yes, he gives us eternal life. But the important thing he says here is we'll never perish because no one can snatch us out of his hand. Since he and the Father are one, we are in the hand of Jesus. We are in the hand of the Father. So we are secure. Many passages of Scripture and many Psalms talk to us about the blessings of being secure in God. How about this passage from Psalm 91, 1 through 4? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler 
and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. In this psalm is a wonderful picture. Would you believe it? A wonderful picture of a chicken. A mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings for protection. You can kind of picture that in your mind, right? Senses that some danger is near. Chickens are not exactly amazingly great, powerful creatures, are they? They're kind of prey, not predators. So here comes some danger. And here the mother hen gathers all of her chicks underneath her wings to protect them. What care, what protection. I can't help but thinking as sort of the modern, you know, 21st century person, but aren't there a lot of things that can overpower a chicken? Nothing is stronger than God. Not any of our enemies are stronger than God. Not our enemy, Satan. In Luke 22, Satan entered Judas. Was Judas a sheep Jesus lost? No. He was never one of Jesus' sheep, as Jesus himself says. In Luke 22, Jesus said this to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan demanded to have Peter, to sift him as wheat, another picture that I don't really have much of a grasp of. But I think it means Satan wanted to shake Peter so forcefully that he might fall and ultimately be lost. But Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. Yes, Peter denied Jesus three times, but unlike Judas, Peter repented and was saved because of Jesus' strength and prayer, not his own. Satan is a powerful enemy of ours. Jesus is stronger still. And Satan cannot snatch me out of Jesus' hand. The world is a powerful enemy of ours. It exerts its power and influence on us all the time to try to draw us away from Christ. We have to admit that there are times in our lives when the world succeeds to some extent in temporarily making it our greatest priority instead of Jesus, but it cannot ultimately draw us away from Christ permanently. Jesus, our shepherd, will always seek us, find us, and return us to his fold. Because he has overcome the world. The world cannot snatch me out of Jesus' hand. The flesh is our enemy, which means we have a powerful enemy inside of us. Jesus is stronger than our flesh. And we'll never be able to wiggle out of his grasp. Let me illustrate this. Uh, a little bit by telling you that at home we have two pets. We have a bird, a peach-faced lovebird. 
And we have the cutest dog in the history of the world. <laughs> Mabel. All four pounds of her. Uh, for some of our care group, when they met at our house, Mabel was kind of our mascot. Just kind of laying on my lap and sleeping through our discussions. But Mabel, though four pounds, when she wiggles, boy, she's stronger than you give her credit for. And unfortunately, there have been times where she has wiggled out of my arms and wiggled out of Debbie's arms and wiggled out of Debbie's father's arms and wiggled out of her previous owner's arms and fell to the ground and yelped in pain. Doesn't know not the wiggle. But we are stronger than a four-pound little multi-poo. So now we just hold her even stronger to make sure that she doesn't wiggle out of our arms and hurt herself. It is not possible for me to wiggle out of Jesus' arms. He is more powerful than the flesh in me that at times wrongly wants to do that very thing. Our shepherd watches over us. Our shepherd has given us the Holy Spirit to live within us. And yes, there are times when our flesh wins minor battles for our affections and we act in ways that dishonor God. Paul talks about his inner struggles in Romans 7 and wonders, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? His answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our good shepherd will keep us from the dangers of our own flesh and cause us to persevere in our faith and to become more like him from day to day. Uh, in a week where my own words were sometimes hard to come by, I would like to share some of this wonderful truth about our security in Jesus by sharing the, with, with sharing the words of some famous hymns and one uh, more recent song. Fanny Crosby wrote in 1890, a hymn called A Wonderful Savior is Jesus My Lord. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord, a wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock where rivers of pleasure I see. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. He taketh my burden away. He holdeth me up and I shall not be moved. He giveth me strength as my day. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand. This hymn reminds us of Moses' experience on Mount Sinai. Moses asked God to show him his glory in Exodus 33. God graciously agrees, but because no one can see God's glory and live, he tells Moses there was a cleft in the rock where he should stand, and while he passed by, he's going to cover Moses over with his hand for protection. 
for believers, for Jesus' sheep, God's hand is the hand of protection from which no one can snatch us. A second old hymn that wonderfully talks about God's gracious protection of us is one that called My Anchor Holds. My Anchor Holds is based on Hebrews 6.19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Sorry. Though the angry surges roll in my tempest-driven soul, I am peaceful, for I know Wildly though the winds may blow, I have an anchor, safe and sure, that can evermore endure. Mighty tides about me sweep, perils lurk within the deep, angry clouds o'ershade the sky, and the tempest rises high. Still I stand, the tempest shock, for my anchor grips the rock. I can feel my anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast. And the cable, though unseen, bears the heavy strain between. Through the storm I safely ride till the turning of the tide. Troubles almost whelm the soul. Griefs like billows o'er me roll. Tempters seek to lure astray. Storms obscure the light of day. But in Christ... I can be bold. I have an anchor that shall hold. And it holds, my anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, my gale, O gale, on my bark so small and frail. By his grace, I shall not fail, for my anchor holds. Many of you may be more familiar with this one, one that we sing from time to time here at church. He will hold me fast. Let me see if I can read this one. Debbie, maybe you should have printed it in bigger letters. <laughs> when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He will not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cross, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died. Justice has been satisfied. Raised with him to endless life. Till our faith is turned to sight. When he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Brothers and sisters, if we are truly members of Jesus' flock, our good shepherd 
will see us through to the end by his strength. We will persevere because God will hide us in the cleft of the rock. We will not fail because we have an anchor, strong and sure, seated at the right hand of God, praying for us. We will make it to heaven's shores because our shepherd will hold us fast. If you're here this morning and are one of Jesus' sheep, if you know his voice, love his voice, follow his voice joyfully, join me in praising Jesus for the safety and security we enjoy because of who he is. This is all true because in our passage today, there is a third type of person, Jesus himself. Oh, not a non-sheep, not a sheep, the unique shepherd, the one they wanted to stone, the person they wanted to arrest was one of a kind, Messiah, God-man, one in essence and mission with the Father, worker of miracles, speaker of the truth, light of the world, good shepherd, protector of his flock, consecrated and sent by the Father, Son of God, whose time had not yet come, so the stones and the arrest threats meant nothing. I'd like to simply finish our time today by reminding ourselves of what John has already revealed to us about the wonders of who Jesus our shepherd is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, chapter 1. In chapter 2, Jesus changed water to wine, and John called that the first sign that manifested his glory. Jesus said about himself, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up again in three days. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil, chapter 3. In chapter 4, the woman said to him at the well, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, Jesus is the one who heals an official son from a distance, heals a lame man at the pool of Bethesda, feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, walks on water, and revealed himself as the bread of life. 
In recent chapters, he'd revealed himself to be the light of the world and the one who was before Abraham. He was the one who could heal the blind and has now revealed himself as the good shepherd who is one with his father. John's gospel has been a faithful witness, proclaiming the identity of Jesus and telling us all the great works that he performed. I don't know if you remember, but our series in John actually began at the end of John, of all things, in John 20, 30, where the gospel writer said, Now Jesus did many other things and many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Have you believed? The Gospel of John ends with this statement. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus' words and Jesus' works testify clearly that he is the only Savior of mankind. And as the only Savior of mankind, Jesus divides the world into two groups of people. Those who by his grace believe in him and follow him and those who do not. So as we end our thoughts together this morning, I have to ask you the most important question that I could ever ask, which are you? Chapter 10 actually brings us full circle, back to the geographical place where the gospel began. In verses 40 to 42, it says, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. I pray that everything that I have said this morning about Jesus has been true, like John's words. Have you believed in Jesus? If you have, then glory today in his care for you as your good shepherd and praise him especially today for your security and for no one can snatch you out of his hand. If you have never believed in Jesus, it's certainly not because there isn't enough evidence. His own words and works clearly say like a huge neon sign, this is the Son of God. He certainly was not a lunatic or devil. I ask you to believe in him today.